Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex encounter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. I'm with my buddy James. James, how are you now? I'm good, Mike. Cool. Good to see you again up close to the mic up close to your camera like a little woodland animal <laughs> it's kind of scary well i notice in previous podcasts i keep fading in and out because i sit back on my chair and then i fade out and yeah. so i'm trying to give our viewers a good listening experience because yeah. i know they want to hear my melodious voice thank god you don't put this on youtube <laughs> <laughs> that's right you're looking at my nose hair yeah yeah I'm gonna put uh, I'm gonna put you on my uh, your, my Christmas gift list list for one of those sexy Madonna microphones. I think. Okay, then I can then I can uh, lean back. Yeah, James, how many episodes have we done? Which episode? Five. This is number five, isn't it? Is number five. That's kind of exciting, actually. It we is. Started, started this in May. We've been cranking out one every month. We have uh, 882 all-time downloads. Woo-hoo! I'm actually amazed that people uh, tell us they like this podcast. I don't understand what drugs they're taking. I don't understand how sad and depressing their lives are, but I'm just grateful for it. It's our witty repartee. It is. It's very witty. And uh, because we're just such terrific guys. We are. We are that. And I tell myself that frequently. Uh, we have 74. I've got it taped on my mirror. <laughs> you are a terrific guy. I'm handsome and I'm good enough, darn it. <laughs> we have 70 followers hey. and believe it or not i'm scratching my head about this according to the podbean stats analyzer which is not terribly user-friendly we have four listeners in brazil Ooh, huh i i don't hello, know brazil hello brazil uh um yeah I, I love the girls from ipanema that's yeah all I know, I like Brazil nuts. But anyway, we're, we're I, I was really upset that the Brazilian Olympics did not cause a resurgence in bossa nova music. Mm. Like it's it, it's a great sound. It is. I love bossa nova. Yeah, and but it didn't happen. And I was like, what the hell? We should maybe change our theme song. Hot Brazilian supermodels in bikinis dancing on videos to bossa nova music. Yeah, just settle down their sport. Just <laughs> just dial twenty percent back. <laughs> So we've had a we've had some fun stuff fun times lately. We had on August thirtieth, we had a grand uh, time as guests. This is the first time that you and I've been guests, so we're well on our way to being we're getting podcast so, uh, celebrities uh, with Gary Grimes and his son on their Across the Pond War Gamers uh, podcast. Yes, that was fun. As we were pitched up against uh, uh, Jay Arnold, who mm-hmm. is a veteran war gamer. 
and uh, we did a quiz and uh, we narrowly squeaked out a win just simply because uh, we had two heads against one. Yeah, that did help. Yeah, poor Jay was fighting solo. Although, you know, a lot of those questions really uh, taxed my knowledge on the War of the Roses. It was uh, more stuff about the War of the Roses than I understood. But <laughs> the highlight of that for me was you telling us about how you won uh, a game of kin Kingmaker uh, playing against your wife, Elizabeth, and a rabbit. Was it, or no. did the rabbit one? No. It, yeah, it was a teddy bear. The teddy bear, that's right. Yeah, the teddy bear one. Yeah, yeah, teddy bear one. But I won't repeat the story. You'll have to listen to the Across the Pond podcast. You, everyone should, yeah. And yeah. that's a great podcast, by the way. Uh, and we really encourage, well, there's two, uh, we really encourage everyone to, to subscribe to Across the Pond. And of course, Jay Arnold's veteran wargamer. I mean, Jay's got what? If you're listening, buddy, you've got what? 70 in the bag and we're coming up to number five. So yeah, pat your Canadian friends on the head. Tell them they're doing a good job. And then, of course, we were a little bit devastated because the next night was that horrible news uh, from uh, Kabul of the death of the uh, American Marines and servicemen and women in, in Kabul. And mm. you know, Gary and Jay are both uh, uh, American brothers in, in arms. So, yeah, that was that was tough. And then uh, at the end of the month, I forget exactly what day we're doing it, but we are talking to Henry Hyde. Woo! That is exciting. We are going to talk on his uh, Battle Talk podcast about um, uh, the wargaming scene in the Great White North. And certainly, yeah. So we're our toques, fry some back bacon. Yeah, we do. We should work on our uh, Canadian accents, yeah. Okay. Hey, Henry. hey, Henry, take off, eh? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun. And I'm also going to be a guest on Henry's um, mental health podcast. Uh, Very good. Yeah, his uh, What's in Your Head podcast i think is what it's called so inside your head podcast so yeah i'm excited about that yeah i'm so, not sure i have any i'm not sure i'd really have any any great insights for him except i've been doing a lot of hobbying to keep myself happy yeah yeah well you know you and i both said in our very first podcast when we were introducing introducing ourselves that we have um experienced some significant ups and downs in our lives and we both uh we both thought how do you put it the black dog Yep. And, uh, you know, some days are better than others. And it's funny because this morning I was listening to um, uh, Big Lee from uh, London, England on his. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And he was talking about his wargaming addictive. One of his uh, um, relatives uh, was saying that in his or her opinion, he thought that uh, Lee's hobbying was addictive. And I kind of thought, you know, uh, that probably deserved a rude retort, but no, Lee was quite patient and talking about all of the benefits of the hobby and how it was kind of a firewall for his mental health. And yeah, I thought good on you, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I think any, any hobby um, and people who do hobbies get it. I think yeah. it's sewing, knitting, pottery, music. You yeah. Know, yeah. It's all, you know, we, we all get it, how much we get out of it. Yeah, something where at the end of the day you can see the fruit of your the fruit of your labor. You can see the the work of your hands, the work of your imagination, and well, and, you know, and actually an interesting story about that. Yeah. Um, my daughter, being into individual arts, uh, she shares stuff on you know her social media, and we get this call um, the other night from my sister in law, 
and she says, you know, I was, vis- I was visiting mom and we we're talking about you guys. And mom asked, you know, is everything all right? I haven't seen any of my daughter, you know, her granddaughter, my daughters. I'm not going to say her name. Um, art on Facebook. Like, is she okay? Like, is she depressed? Like, and, you know, so we had to like, no, no, she's fine. <laughs> she's been working on something really big. She hasn't shared it, you know. It's all right. Mm. So, you know, that was a, but that was something that my mother-in-law was, you know, noticed and looked out for, which is, you know, good honor. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And then, uh, she was sort of looking for that as a sign of, um, you know, like uh, her well-being, right? Like, yeah. where, where are the paintings? Yeah, that's cool. All right. So uh, we're going to get to the uh, interview part of our uh, uh, show. So our interview is not as long as some of the previous ones. And we are going to go out to uh, Vancouver. This is our second guest from the West. We're talking to uh, Rene Charbonneau, who is the president of the Trumpeter Tabletop Gaming Society. So here's the interview. Hi, Rene. Uh, I'm uh, really glad that we're, James and I are really glad to have you with us. So Rene Charbonneau um, has joined us because, uh, well, first of all, he's a good guy and he didn't have anything better to do. And secondly, um, we, we're delighted, are delighted to have the president of the Trumpeter War Games Club from Vancouver. Uh, Rene, are, gaming Society. Trumpeter War Gaming Society. Sorry. Every time I say gaming, Terry Soshenko gets mad at me. Okay. Rene, are you still the, uh, are you still the uh, president? Yes. Okay, cool. So we'll look forward to, um, we'll look forward to hearing a lot about Trumpeter during the course of this conversation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you fit perfectly into our mandate, which is, um, to just talk about the wargaming scene in the Great White North um, or the Wild West. Um, my son, um, uh, I was just saying to Renee uh, before we got started, my son from Nanaimo is uh, with us this uh, week. He made it out despite forest fires and sleeping in the airport to get to Ontario. And I was teasing him over dinner that really, um, to us in Ontario, like, you know, Vancouver, Nanaimo, Victoria, it's all kind of like one thing across the Rocky Mountains and we're not really sure what goes on there, but that's not quite true. I, I'm from BC originally, so. It's just, it's just trees and killer whales, isn't it? Trees and killer whales and really, really mellow people, I think. For the don't most forget part. the salmon. Oh yeah, yeah, salmon and Rocky Mountains. <laughs> yeah, and I was saying to Renee that uh, he's actually our second guest from the West because we spoke to uh, um, Bob Merch a couple of yeah. sessions ago. That was great, but you are our furthest guest west, unless we can find somebody on the island to talk to. Um, so, Renee, why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about yourselves? Maybe uh, you know your your wargaming biography: who you yeah. are, what do you play, what do you like to play, that sort of thing. Okay, I was going to say, let me give you a bit of history of the trumpet and tabletop games. Yeah, let's hear your history first, if you don't mind, because okay. you're you're interesting too. Okay, um, I started. I kind of was interested because my father had some interesting war stories from uh, World War II. He was he went through uh, northern France and Belgium, and uh, he actually rode the tanks to Hung to Hamburg when we cut off the Russians from taking Denmark. Oh, cool! And you're you're saying your father was with your father was a Patricia, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. The PPCLI, and uh, I've seen a few photographs of him in like uh, the Maple Leap route and a few things, and it's like. Okay, it's not credited, but you know, that face looks familiar in that uniform with that Bren gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was always interested in the stories that he had to tell about it and some of the people 
uh, some of his old war buddies and that. And I went to uh, my uncle's place in Madison, Wisconsin, and he had 1,000 figures that were antiques from World War One of the American military. Oh, for goodness sake. This is fantastic. <laughs> how, how old were you? I mean, I get to move these around and shoot them at these things. Yeah. This is great. How, how old were you then, Renee? I was nine. Wow, that's a pretty impressive, um, impressionable age. When, you know, we got the Airfix figures with the 54 millimeter figures and those are the, you know, we would just do the bang, you're dead. And uh, one of my classmates, her father was professor of military history at University of Manitoba. And she went, no, 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 no. That's not how you do it. You roll D6s. A six is a kill. This, this. And it's like, and it t- totally opened it up as a game to us. Okay. And we were like 10 and 11 at, the, at that point. So that was just amazing. And just out of, uh, out of her head, she came up with these rules that were stupid, simple, but worked. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, right. I've been trying to teach my five-year-old grandson the idea of applying dice to just bashing <laughs> figures around, but he's only five. So that's... I... Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's a little exciting at that age, but from there, uh, when I came out to the West Coast with my family, the first game I actually bought was uh, Avalon Hills Africa Course. I have it behind me, I think. Yeah, right there. I see it. And I was buying figures, and we were doing various fairly, fairly simple games and that, and uh, got in with a bunch of with the other guys. And as in the fullness of time, I ran into the trumpeters. They were much more organized. Mm-hmm. And for me, mostly it was, I had to collect all the figures. I had to collect all the stuff because I was the one organizing a bunch of people and again, doing something stupid, simple, but it was still, it was interesting to suddenly run into people going, oh, you mean I don't have to buy every side? <laughs> I mean, there's other people. I mean, other people will contribute to this? Wow. Hey, That's what a crazy idea. idea. <laughs> so uh, what what year did you run into the, the trumpeter folks? Probably 76. Okay. And you guys are a long-standing club, right? Because I, your website says, I'm just going to look at it here really quickly. You have a great website, by the way. Uh, it says you guys have been around. Yeah, the Trumpeter Tabletop Gaming Society. You guys claim to be North America's oldest gaming society because you've been running since 1964. So they were they were well-established when you ran into them. Yeah. Uh, when I ran into them, they were it was a once-a-week group at... Uh, one of the Lions Clubs. So they would have various tables in the gym of uh, one of the Lions Clubs in Vancouver. And that, that worked fairly well in a little kitchen. And I mean, you go out for a day of gaming every Sunday. Before that, apparently, before my time, there was a guy named Hutch, John Hutch, Hutchinson, pardon me, and they would game in his basement. Yeah. Again, with, again, with the 54 millimeter figures. And then when the HO00 figures came out, they were using those ones. When the LEDs came out, that was uh, opened up a whole new thing. Uh, from there, that went along for a while at the Lions Club. And then about 25 years ago, thereabouts, um, it uh, got to, it sort of broke up into smaller groups. So smaller groups would game once a week at their own venues and places and then get together at a rec center, Bonsa Rec Center. Once a fr- whenever, every, once a, one Friday a month, we, at least that's the idea. With COVID, not so much. Have, have you guys been totally suspended your meetings uh, since COVID or? Yeah, we, we yeah. had to do that. Yeah. Partially got sponsors wanting. And, and how are things in Vancouver right, right now? Um, yeah. They've really, they brought in the mask mandate again and they've, uh, people have to be double, have to be double vaccinated in order to do a lot of stuff indoors, but that's coming. Yeah. All right. So yeah. it's, it's, we've got hit with the, uh, what they're calling the fourth wave. 
Right. Yeah, I'm mm. afraid. I hear that word. I hear that phrase more and more now. I'm afraid. It's, yeah, it's uh, getting ominous. Yeah. Not so good. Not so good. So, I don't know if it's a thesis, James, or if it's one of our our contentions on the podcast is that Canada doesn't have a wargaming clubs the way that you see them in the UK. But I, it seems to me that Trumpeter might be the exception to that rule because you guys have been organized for a long time. And as you say, one, one Friday a month, you, yeah. before COVID, were bringing together a bunch of gamers from all over the lower mainland. That sounds yeah. pretty organized. Yeah, we do. We do pretty good. And part of it helps that we allow, like we bring in a lot of different types of games. So we're trying to appeal to a broad base. Right. So we'll do card games, board games, various types of board games, fantasy role-playing games. And then there's the various periods for the miniatures. And that uh, it's... People are much better at painting their figures now. I'm more of a gamer than a painter. Like I'll paint figures, and I've been painting figures since, you know, since the '70s. But uh, I'm I'm more of a gamer. But there's a it's it's really neat to, to look over and see all these painted figures. And because I remember when I started, there's a there were people would just put off whatever they had, right? You had unpainted yeah. figures on the field, but it's, you know you're going yeah who cares play, just play the game. And is there a space at the the rec center in Burnaby where you guys can store stuff, or or does everybody no. schlep their stuff to the the venue? No, we we take our stuff home. Yeah, and so we on the Friday we come by and bring it. Once a year we have our salute, which is usually in March. And I, I guess that hasn't happened since since COVID, right? No. God willing, it'll happen in um, in uh, twenty two. Hoping. How big an event is that, Renee? Uh, we usually. We get about uh, three to four hundred people, but that's three to four hundred people over the weekend. That includes game masters, vendors. Yep, game masters, vendors, players. Yeah, about eighty, around eighty games. Yeah, yeah so you're, yeah, hot lead's about the same. Well, is, yeah, Renee, is that what you guys call call to arms, or is that? Uh... No, call to arms is the something we've done. We started last year. Okay. And in October, it's a two-day event. The Ooh. idea is that uh, somebody can set up an event on a Friday evening, and they don't have to pack it up. So you don't have to go, okay, I've got three or four hours to do this. It has to be done, and I have to have time to be able to pack it up. So I can't do a, a proper longer game. The idea was, okay, well, no, you can set up your game, do your game, and the next day, come by and finish the game. I see. But all okay. Saturday to do it. Right. right. You can set up a long game or do a long campaign. Well, that's a neat concept. That's a, f- a weekend in September usually, right? Sing- your website, uh, yeah, it's usually October, somewhere in there. Like sometimes, I think last year was September. This year, we were, we were going to do October, but we'll have to see how that uh, works out. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, we'll be like, I think we'll be lucky to get a Friday in October. But Trumpeter Salute is the the event in the spring, right? That's the what the event in the spring, and that's the full weekend. Wow. The, the call to arms is just the Friday Saturday. Yeah, James, that sounds like a good time to go to Vancouver in in uh, March. With because uh, you guys have got like blossoms and tulips and stuff. I'm, We're still... I'm a bit busy in March. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was kidding, but if I'm just putting my tourist hat on, if I had to like travel across the country to a war games event, oh yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, it's spring in Vancouver. It's uh, that's it's quite nice. Yeah, usually uh, that's about the time that uh, my relatives in Lower Mainland start sending me pictures of their gardens, and mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still shoveling snow and shivering and. Uh, everything's just maybe budding well you know so if people if, if people can't make it to hot lead in march then they really should go to trumpeter i think so or go to both provided they don't conflict yeah 
Well, I mean, if you if you're the jet set type and you don't mind flying around, but <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You can just kind of divide the country along the watershed. <laughs> In your your rented war games Learjet, that would be cool. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, I have a hotlet tour bus. That would be nice. What? <laughs> so what's um uh, uh salute Renee? That is that like a, a must? It sounds like a pretty wide ranging. Yeah. Uh, weekend of games, like whatever game masters are willing to put on. Yeah, yeah. I just say we get board games. We get uh, well. We've got we've had a few people. We've had the uh, YVR Dungeon Masters, who is a group in Vancouver, organized a couple of years ago to do do D and D Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. And they come by and they'll they'll put on a couple of games. We've had um, contests. So we've had um, Watch the Skies came by one one year and they put on their their whole thing for Watch the Skies, which is Sorry, I, I, I don't. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, that's that's a um, you get groups of people who represent various nations and an, and an alien, and the idea is aliens are invading Earth, so the various groups are nations, and they have to figure out how to defend and how to cooperate. Oh, so it's like a mega game kind of yes. thing. Yeah. Oh, and that they get up cool. to eighty people doing that. Wow. They haven't done it for a little bit, but uh, you know, when it was when it was really happening, it was really something to see. Huh. The only other one I know of that happens in Canada is something that they do at McGill and Rex Bryan and at the Conflict Sim Center at McGill does something like that. But that's cool. I didn't know there was something else because I've always wanted to do one of those big mega game events where you're yeah. part of a team of 80 people. And that, that would be cool. We've yeah. had tournaments. Um, the Warhammer people came by and did uh, a Warhammer tournament and they had prizes and everything. Yeah. So that was really neat to do to see as well. Are there uh, like uh, is there an ancients contingent that does DBA or something like that at the event or? Yeah, there there we've had uh, DBA. We've had uh, we've got quite the ancients contingent, and they put on various games. Right. DBA is one of them. Uh, one of the ones I've seen. And what about what about you? What's your uh, what's your what's in your gaming wheelhouse? I actually play a lot of things. Um, I, I I do much prefer World War II, but uh, I've done Seven Years' War, done Napoleonic. Um, various naval type games and i've got oh, thousands literally thousands of figures from various periods well i think we all do yeah <laughs> so if your house was burning and you could only run out with like two boxes of minis or one box of minis <laughs> what, what would that be i think i start throwing everything out the window and hope it survived oh i see <laughs> that's a good solution yeah you know like they'll, they'll bounce on the lawn right they'll bounce on the lawn it's it's there okay you yeah, might have to glue some tanks together, but you know the, 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 the troops will survive. You just have to find them in the grass. Yeah, yeah it's tough if you're, all your stuff is in a basement. But uh, I was running that thought experiment by my wife, and she just looked at me like, seriously, dude? Like you'd run back into a burning house for like a box of minis? Like not the passports or, or like wedding <laughs> pictures? Or, no, nah, those like, are replaceable. Yeah. yeah. You contact the government. Those are replaceable. The minis, not so much. Not so much, no, no. She's so serious, Joy is. Well, yeah, in a lovely way. So, has, he lives in the basement. He's got the window. He said that for him. I live on a third floor, so mine would bounce a bit. <laughs> in the basement, his would just go out onto the grass. Yeah, firefighters, what is this guy in the basement pushing stuff out of his basement window? <laughs> yeah, okay. oh, the house he, is on fire. Why is he pushing why, stuff out of his basement? Yeah. Why, is, why isn't he leaving? Yeah. Um. What's the uh, like? What's the age? What's the? What are the demographics of your club, Renee? 
We, well, you know, like any club, we've got a lot of uh, older guys. We have a few younger that come by, but they're they're not as uh, not as young. And you get some people that uh, get insular, so they try to bat them away. But there's a lot of us who are kind of like, no kid, come and play. Good. So we get a few younger ones, but it's 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 chiefly uh, a lot of older people. We've uh, and COVID, with COVID, we've lost a few. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, that's ugly. You know, there's that debate that you sometimes hear on podcasts and stuff about the graying of the hobby. Yeah. You know, like we're all getting older and, and how do we attract young people? And um, is that, and, and we've heard different people around Canada, like um, uh, Barnaby Orr from the group in Hamilton has some really interesting thoughts about that. But yeah, it, other people are tend to take the attitude that, well, you know, um, it is what it is, and young people would rather be out clubbing and paragliding, and we're a bunch of old farts in our basements playing Waterloo games. So, you know, why should we worry that much? Uh, have, have you guys got sort of an opinion as a club on that one way or the other? Do you have kind of outreach um, strategies? or? I put my posters up at high schools because I work in a high school. Okay. So when the posters come up, I'll put them up around the high school. Um, I sometimes get a kid come by doing my bit to be welcoming and saying, hey, okay, come on. Yeah. Oh, you're here for your first time? You're, you're free. Come on. Come play a game. Cool. We'll, uh, you can pass next time. Don't worry about it. Yeah, because you guys have a membership um, membership structure for your club, right? Yeah. So it's uh, your membership fee for the year, and then otherwise you pay to play. Is that sort of how it works? Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm so sure the show costs money. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah, but I like that idea of giving a newcomer, like a particularly young person, a free, uh, a free game. Yeah. And, yeah, that's cool. And, you know, uh, Barnaby Orr was saying, uh, I heard him on a, an American podcast um, okay. some time ago where he was saying, you know, we have lots of toys. Uh, we don't care, actually, if people even want to borrow some of our toys because uh, if they want to play with them, that's fine. You know, we're probably going to see them again if they want to borrow a box of Space Marines or whatever. So he's, he takes a remarkably generous view to getting young people started. And mm. I I, I like that idea, you know, that as opposed to that, what was that word you used, insular, Renee, about yeah. people just sort of, you know, saying, yeah, we're just doing our own thing and we don't really care about the rest of the world. People are going to be people. You got to let them be people. Yeah, yeah. But I like Barnaby. I've always liked Barnaby. He, he used to be out here. Yeah, we're hoping to have him on as a guest at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something I was going to ask. I, have, I use, um, I remember this one kid, he's about 14, right? And, I do one of the games I usually do on a Friday night is uh, First World War Air. Oh yeah, we use um, plastic like old Airfords models. Oh, cool. he broke one of the planes out, and I was like, "Yeah, kid, don't worry about it. Give me that. Take this one. Go play." And he thought I was going to get really mad at him. It's like, "Yeah, I'll fix it." Yeah, the ten bucks each. It all you're almost putting more into it, painting it, and building it than you actually spent to buy it. And a couple of go and have fun. A couple of dabs of polystyrene cement, and you're you know. It's ready to fly again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, day, oh, it doesn't have landing gear. Okay. Well, no, we're not going to worry about that. Just play. Yeah. Because yeah, at the end of the day, it's an Airfix model, right? But yeah. Yeah. It's not like your first barn. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Staying relaxed about it. <laughs> that's a remarkably generous attitude. I really like that. That's that's so cool to hear. Um, from, from like the, the Warhammer scene, I kind of get the impression that there's very much a you don't touch other people's models yeah from warhammer people i get that yeah and it's yeah. like okay you guys you do what you're gonna do 
And when you, when you put on a game with both sides and you invite people to play and move your stuff and they're like, what you're letting somebody else touch your figures. It's like, well, how are they going to play? Yeah. Yeah. You know, how are they going to learn to play? And how am I going to run a game if I'm always relying on having somebody else to bring the other side? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very much paint both sides yeah. in, a, in a project to, to make sure I can always put on a game. Yeah. I've had it happen too often where I'm all set to play something and then the guy who is going to bring the other side yeah. can't make it because real life has gotten in the way. Yeah. And it's like, well, now we've got to figure something else out to play. Tonight. For me, I was so often dealing with people who didn't have the other side and were kind of going, well, what is this? What is this? But I always had to have all sides. Yeah. So I could put on the battle and also figure out, okay, how am I going to do this? Am I going to have enough stuff to do this with? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to say hello, Frankie? Oh, you just got bonus marks for inviting your cat onto the podcast. Hey, is that Frankie? This is Frankie. Oh, he's, he's a Sylvester cat. He's got white toes. That's great. Yeah. He's a tuxedo cat. Handsome oh, like house panther. That's cool. <laughs> it's tailing yeah. on the screen. <laughs> So I'm in my uh, what I call my war games bunker in the basement where I, I have um, James doesn't understand them, but I have uh, I like hex and counter games. So I've got uh, they usually run like weeks or sometimes yeah, months. Right. Yeah, I know. So I have I have to keep the door closed so the cat doesn't get on and end the game in a hurry. Cause, yeah. Yeah. But in my time, I've uh, had a few games that were won by the cat. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Two of us were playing. Somebody phoned me up. Go, OK, we're continuing the game. No, the cat won. Cat one, yeah, exactly. Not so bad. I figure out how to, uh, for the longest time, we were doing uh, World in Flames, which is a uh, huge level strategic uh, World War Two. Oh, such a cat proof it. Yeah, it took me a while, but I did. I did manage to cat proof it. How'd you do that? Um, milk, uh, the milk caps, and then oh, I have yeah. a plastic glass, and the milk caps go on the board. Oh, they're big enough and they're strong enough that they're going to hold the. Uh, the plexiglass to put the plexiglass sheet on top and the cat walks over the plexiglass and goes eh. there you go now the cat won't win the games anymore that's very clever got to get a big sheet of plexiglass there mike yeah i'm kind of thinking i should do that for sure i like the idea of the milk caps yeah, i've got one here you can borrow it next time what a cat or a plexiglass a piece of plexiglass it might not be okay. bigger some of your map sheets but yeah they're not that expensive i've, I've i have smaller sheets at the hardware store but uh, that i found at the hardware store but a big one for like a four game map like a flames of like a world in flames map that might be a big order renee i, I had a question for you just about the, the logistics of running a club because you're you're the president and you've got uh your your masthead on your website says you've got a team of guys that help you out which looks great but you know running a club particularly when it's hobby oriented, that can sometimes be a pain in the butt just because of politics and, and egos and stuff. Have you, have you managed to do that fairly successfully without a lot of friction or, and if so, do you have a secret to share with us? Uh, for the most part, if, uh, like I'm not inviting you, don't anything bad about your other club members. Or yeah. Uh, no, no. We're, they're actually usually pretty good. They just want, they want to be able to put on games. Some people have some funny ideas. Uh, when they come to me with some funny ideas, I'll sit, I'll look at them and I'll go, we'll take it into consideration. <laughs> My usual yeah. phrase is, we'll take it into consideration. Some people have learned that they go, right, never mind. <laughs> sort of stroke your chin knowledgeably. So yes, we'll take that into consideration. Um, if somebody really wants, they're really, we had one guy who wanted to change how we were for a society. Yeah. And my response is, okay, you do the research. <laughs> you want us to change how we are as a society. That's fine. 
you do the research, you find out all the legal ramifications of that, because we've been doing this for 30 years with the government. We have our everything set and we know what we're supposed to do, what the government expects of us for our paperwork and everything. You want to change that, you do the research. I didn't hear another word about it. Very cool. Because yeah, you're... Uh... You know, your bookkeeper is is doing this all volunteer. Yep. You know, and trying to make sure that you have the ta- you know the, the tax man happy. Yep. So I, I see on your website you're an actual uh, you have an actual annual general meeting. You have rules and bylaws, yep. and so are, are you like a um, a nonprofit registered with uh, yeah. the CRA? Okay. That's that's just a there's a fair bit of work involved in that. There is a bit of work involved in that. It's weird. Yeah. There is, uh, and the government can get quite anal about uh, dotting the t's and crossing the i. And and what do you do with your charitable status? Like how do, how does that work? If you don't mind me asking. Um, well, we fill out, like I say, we fill out the paperwork. We have a certain amount of money that we have. Um, we we just, we have to keep in mind. We we have to very carefully record everything for them. Right. And then we send in our charter and what we've made, what we've spent. And as long as we're not making scads and scads of money, which we're not, um, right. they're happy. We're happy. Are there, are, are there charities that you support with your proceeds? or Because I imagine you have to have so much money to cover, like James said, the rental cost of the, the hall. Oh, yeah, the room, the room costs. And we get a um, nonprofit status for that. So we're not paying. Right what somebody would coming in doing something like a wedding or something. No, we pretty much, uh, we don't have any places that we uh, contribute to. Like I'm, I, I would have to say, James, like, is there another group in Canada that you know of that is as organized as, as these guys? Uh, no, no, I, I, well, I don't know what the Hamilton tabletop group is, is like in their, in their organization or, or anything like that. It helps when you've been doing it. For, for seven years, yeah. Yeah. Iron out the bugs. Well, like I like I was saying, I mean, there's a lot of um, politics and things like oh, yeah. you, know, you know amateur sports reenacting. My uh, I have a brother in Chilliwack who used to belong to a pipe band. Okay. And he quit, but like for five or six years, he was like a born again Scotsman. He loved oh yeah, yeah. pipes, and then he the he said the uh, the politics and the pipe band got so crazy that he quit. So, I mean, good for you guys that you've, you've been around so long and, and you know, without, apparently without any friction. That's great. Politics. In the well, we've had our yeah. friction, but, yeah, you know, some people have quit because we didn't do things the way they wanted. And it's like, okay, we're going to do things the way we're going to do things if you don't like it. Um, like I say, some of it is letting people be people that a lot of people just want to spout off and, and be heard. And it's like, okay, I did hear you. Yeah. You can go away now. I don't say that, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. It's yeah. letting people be people at some level, but other people are going to, like I say, the, the guy that demanded things change and everything, and it's like, okay, you do the work. Yeah, well, I don't want to work, but we are. Yeah, that's... and as board of directors, we're actually doing a lot of work. If you want to be part of that, do the work. Nope. Okay. No problem. Then come and enjoy the game. Right. Oh, I can do that. That's a, that's a, usually the best way to get get these people in line is just say. It, if you have this problem, what is your solution? And how are, how are you, you know, what is the plan to execute that solution? And suddenly they'd be quiet. And uh, you also have a, a really nice little code of conduct on your website. I was just looking at it. It's pretty, uh, 
it's pretty simple, but it lets, you know, it's like, yeah. it's James and I, and I think our first podcast, we talked about the, you know, the basic code of contact for Wargaming, which is don't be a jerk, right? And <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, you flesh that out in, in four nice ways, conduct yourself in a professional manner, respect the game host, respect the other players, respect the figures, models, and terrain you're using. Such figures are t- teammates with greasier food stain fingers. You know? Yes. Totally oh, my God. Preach. Yeah. Yeah. So leave your Cheetos at home if you're going to touch the Napoleonic Fusiliers. Yeah. Um, and you talked to, you have a nice thing about signing up for games at your salute event. James, who's been organizing a similar event, can relate to that. Mm-hmm. You've signed up a game, then show up. Peer at the gaming table in a timely manner so that's for your salute thing but yeah but that's that looks pretty uh looks pretty comprehensive don't be a jerk yeah it's not rocket science (laughs) not really surprisingly it is to some people though you know i remember once um running a game at a convention and we'd taken a break and there's this guy he's like leaning over my table with this greasy hamburger Uh. You know, looking at stuff while he's eating and things are, and it's like, get away from the table. Don't eat that. Like, James, you told people you'd never tell that story about me on the air. <laughs> oh, I'm so embarrassed. Um, so one of the questions we uh, we want we 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 like to try to kick around on the podcast, Renee, is is the idea of, you know, Canadian wargaming. But is Canadian wargaming just Canadians who happen to play war games in Canada? Or uh, is there something like, you know, is it Canadian wargaming also Canadians who do war games with a specific Canadian theme? So is there anybody okay. like yourself or anybody else in your group who uh, have like specific Canadian projects that they try to bring to the table? Like, I don't know, Vimy Ridge or oh, yeah. Dinian Raids? Yeah, we've, like we've done, and we have, uh, we have done, we've done things like that. We've, uh, we've done Vimy Ridge. We've done, um, I had one friend who went, went out and, Took a bunch of American Civil War figures, painted them green, and he had the Finian raids. Right, right. And he had this whole campaign system where he fought the you fought the Finian raids. So you were trying to gather your forces, and the Canadians were trying to gather their forces, fighting back and forth. Oh, and cool. that, that was actually really neat to see. And he had, you know, some of it was fairly somewhat fanciful because of the, the guys at the time were saying, "Oh yeah, we have hundreds and hundreds of Finians." Like, no, you don't. But you know what I mean? Like, so there was. Every now and then we do, uh, we have done very Canadian sort of things at uh, Salute and at other, at other venues. Okay, that's cool. Uh, one of the things that uh, helped Trumpeters, I think, back in the day was when the, the PNE was on, the Pacific National Exhibition. Right, right. And they had, um, this was before it was just Playland. Now it's just Playland. So they had arts, they had a whole agro fair. There was an arts, whole art contest. There was all kinds of stuff that would go on. And Trumpeters would come by and put on dem- demonstration games. Oh. And that, so you had people in Vancouver going to the PE, painted figures and everything on a battlefield that on a terrain board that looked like terrain. Looked really, you know, it was really spectacular to see. That's where I, where I ran into the trumpeters the first time. Right. Uh, yeah, and, that's a nice thing about a, about an organized club. I mean, that's sort yeah. of how my playing with toy soldiers got organized into wargaming too. Was there there used to yeah. be an organized club in London? Ontario, yeah. they, they um, had advertised just a, a demonstration at a local mall. And yeah. my dad took me to it, and there's these guys playing, you know, like the, the same 
Airfix figures I had, but they're painted and they're moving around and playing this very complicated game and being all, you know, mature about it and stuff. And I'm like, wow, it looks really cool. And, and, but oh, and there was a guy and I saw I could never paint them like that. And he said, well, just start encouraging. He said, well, just, just, just start and, and you'll get better. And it's like, okay. And I did, you know, just like that yeah. older, welcoming guy who wasn't a pompous dick. Yeah, your website has a, a really nice little history piece about this uh, guy called um, uh, Jack Hutchings, yep. who organized uh, these demo events at the the PNE, and uh, I think he also went into schools and, and did stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's nice when a it's nice as a club has somebody like that in their in their memory, right? That they have that uh, kind of DNA that says, "Look, get out there and, and show the hobby to other people." The older members remember gaming in his basement. Yeah, he would. Uh... He would have them come by and put out the figures, and they would they would do battles in the basement. And eventually, in the fullness of time, it uh, won. That's why I say it won, eventually it wound up at uh, the Lions Club. But so by yeah. by my by the time I got into it, it was at the Lions Club. But yeah, Don Hutchins was the first. Yeah, he sounds like quite the character. That's such yeah. a cool such a cool story to read on your on your website. So, when, are you, have you guys got any? Um, club projects that you're working on for reopening like for when covid is <laughs> when covid is over if covid <laughs> is over like are, are there terrain builds going on or, or big games that you guys are working on for a future salute yeah we're kind of hoping to do well we're hopefully salute isn't the first time we uh, get back to it uh we're hope we're hoping to do the call to arms in october but we'll see what happens with that you know we're kind of we're in negotiations with uh the bonser rec center to see what time because we can get for that and with everything going with the fourth wave right now mm -hmm. i don't know we'll see what we can we've, what we've done a couple of times several people have uh done what they they put on a game and what they would do is take the various cameras so people would phone in on zoom right they had the table set up and you'd go okay i want those light horse to move to the hill dismount and defend this side of the hill and i want the cannon to come this way okay so the guy would move that around and the other guy would do his stuff and so you'd be kind of playing you'd be playing somebody but it's by camera yeah, you've been about, doing uh, a lot. you got about 20 people or 20, 30 people looking in with several people playing but most people were spectators so it was really interesting to see that mm -hmm. a lot of effort a lot of work right that was an that was an amazing amount of work the guy really did uh you know something to do that yeah, yeah. we're just hoping to get back to it for uh for our friday nights yeah do you think that uh, kind of digital online gaming is going to stay with you guys no. um, post COVID? Like, is no, that the problem, no? Is as good as Zoom is, and as good as uh, like we do, we've done tabletop simulators, and yeah, I've done games on tabletop simulator that I wouldn't have done otherwise, right. unless somebody brought it to me, right? Like it just the game wasn't available, or the game is too new, or what have you. But well, it's been neat to try different games. The minor mitigating circumstance is you can't. Commit. And the thing I like with the hobby is sitting back with somebody going, how was your week? How did it go? Like, and so you, you can sort of sit back as the turn's being done, talk, it's your turn. Okay. Go forward. And do you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's, there's more yeah. to gaming than just gaming. There's meeting, yeah. seeing the people and meet and talking to people and, and getting the human contact. Yeah. Yeah. All Which, that side chatter, socializing yeah. takes up the bandwidth in the virtual gaming space. Yeah. And then the poor, the poor guy's trying to talk talk their moves through at the game master they get you know drowned out by yeah you know you can't do that on oh, Zoom. and the trash talk of course yeah oh we're all about the trash talk oh yeah, yeah. the trash yeah. talk is fun 
Yeah. You do that, I'm going to kick your butt. Yeah, we're sure you're going to try. Come on yeah. now. You're going to roll once, buddy. You're going to roll once. Yeah. <laughs> James and I got together for some uh, with some other people for some face-to-face -face gaming uh, last weekend for the first time. And, geez, over a year and a half, James? Oh, yeah, at least, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was great. There's no substitute for, uh, you know, peering at a little screen and trying to decipher, like, you know, what unit is that? Where's that on the table? Yeah. I mean, that's... You know, I, God bless everybody who tries, and I, I've seen some amazing yeah. games with Tabletop Simulator and whatnot, but there's no substitute for getting together with somebody. Oh, that time when we were playing, we are we're playing Dragon Rampant online, and I'm moving my, my riders of Rohan around, thinking it's the other guys, and you go, oh, no, no, they don't have that. It's like, wait, yeah. no, don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The commander was quite confused. Yeah. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, it's still... Yeah. Full victory in Jaws defeat. Yeah. Renee, uh, here's another question. If I had to ask you to pull out your crystal ball and predict where you see the hobby going in the next five years or so, based on your experience, where would, where would you see it going? Like, what 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 have you noticed at the... I see, at it going. I, see it, I see it still playing. I see it bouncing back from the COVID thing, like everything else will. Yeah. People will be wanting to do something together. So no, I see it uh, growing. Oh, that's up. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And is it going to be, do you see it like a, are there, are there any new trends and periods or rules or um, like 3d printing or stuff like that? Have you guys got anybody in your club who's, who's a 3d printing guru, for example? We have people 3d printing mostly terrain. Um, okay. Figures yeah. get a little too, too detailed right now. Yeah. For most of the 3d printers, but terrain is easy. Uh, tanks aren't too hard. Any details are, extra stuff you want in a tank you can always do a small thing and glue it on i've cool. seen tanks horses but a lot of houses hills and things yeah but it's something that james and i debated in our last show with don perrin as to whether you know what the advantage of 3d printing is for the typical war gamer and i think um we both came to the conclusion that rather than you know for you know the average schmuck like myself who is lucky to get an hour of painting time in in a day Radically increase the number of figures I have to paint may not be the answer, but having somebody who can who can produce a, a rare figure or a rare piece of terrain in return for you know Kickstarter money or Patreon money or favors or whatever that's probably the way to go for for some of us. That's not to say I won't I won't invest in a 3D printer at one at some point, but I'll have to sneak it in without my wife knowing about it. So uh, you know I'm I'm going to wait till my grandson's older and then he gets into it. Well, there you go. And he can just print things for grandma yeah because yeah. he'll he'll be all tech savvy with that and he'll have it all figured out they'll probably learn it in school and he can just say hey grandpa i painted this yeah, yeah. this thing for you you know next say that's great here's a cookie <laughs> <laughs> you know, say grandpa i'm 20 i'm 20 <laughs> well you don't like cookies anymore here's two cookies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. there's a cookie for your girlfriend too yeah 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 i should uh, i should buy one for my son john because he's uh, he's quite technically adept and he's uh, yeah he welcomed the challenge um renee this has been really a, a great conversation i think we've learned a lot about trumpeter and i kind of wish honestly that um my local gaming scene was as organized as uh, as it is in the lower mainland so you guys are yeah, it'll get there you guys are lucky i think that and, and also to be commended for just you know keeping this thing going and um, to the level of professionalism. I mean, your website tells a really good story about it. So uh, yeah, it's a nice uh, website. Yeah, way to go. Um, 
One of the traditions we have for our guests is, uh, well, it's a tradition because we've done it. This will be the fifth time we've done it. Um, it's something I totally stole from a guy called uh, Sean Clark, who runs a British podcast called um, God's Own Scale. Um, and I'm, I think, I don't think Sean listens, but that's okay. I stole the idea from him. So we have this little virtual library and we ask each of our guests to contribute two books which could be like a Canadian history book. It could be a wargaming book. It just could be a book that they think is really cool and would like to share. So we'll just take a digital copy and we'll put it on our digital bookshelf. So Rennie, have you got two books or more that you'd like to, you'd like to? I, I do. One of them is Arrows Against Steel. I don't remember the author, but it's one of the better books I've read about how weapons worked. I'm just going to Google that as we talk, because I can always edit the Googling out. Arrows Against Steel. So it's like a book about uh, weapons technology? Yes. Arrows Against Steel book. The basic argument the author gives that all things being equal, the bow is superior. The problem oh, is it, it takes years and years and years to get good with it. Yeah. So it's uh, Arrows Against Steel, History of the Bow by Victor Hurley. Yes. That's quite an excellent book. Yeah. Uh, the other one is book. Neil... Ferguson and it's War in the World, basically a 20th idea of 20th century warfare. What and what's happened and what led up to it. He go, goes back to, he starts about 1820 and talks about various developments in society, in technology, in various things to that led up to the First and Second World Wars, it's, and also the conflicts in uh, Africa and Vietnam and that in the 60s and 70s. Right. So this is the War of the World. 20th yep. century conflict and the descent of the West. Yeah, so it's Neil N I A L L Ferguson. Yeah, War of the yeah. World, 2006. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I will put links to that um, on our website, and uh, so well, our pod. We don't have a website, but I'll put them in our pod notes, and I'll also make sure there's a link to um, uh, Trumpeter. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one of the things that we would also ask is that if we can check back in with you from time to time and just. Uh, uh, get an update about what things are going on. If you have, um, if you guys decide, for example, that you're going to go ahead with uh, call to arms in the fall, or uh, yeah. um, you know, let us know, and we will uh, we'll we'll plug it in our our podcast, which has a, a reader a listener ship. Is that the word listenership of dozens? Work. So, <laughs> work. yeah, Still we'll be, happy, we'll be yeah. happy to yeah. scores. We have scores. Yes, or score score bars. I'm not sure which. Yeah, yeah. that'd be good. Maybe we should start right. a Patreon so we could buy score bars and give them away. Yeah, we should. <laughs> I, I was quite impressed with that Patreon idea that uh, Gary Grimes had uh, with his podcast about uh, uh, using it just to donate stuff. That was cool. So, huh? Renee, thanks so much for your time and uh, enjoy enjoy your lovely Vancouver uh, early. <laughs> I guess what it's only what uh, it's not even dinner time there. Yeah, that's good. Almost anyway. All right. Okay. Thanks for Thank being you. with us. Uh, we'll let you go, and James and I will chat just for a bit more. But thanks, thanks so much okay. for being with us, Renee. And good luck to Trumpeter. Keep going. And good luck to you. Thank you. Take right. care. So that made me uh, want to go out to Vancouver in uh, March. Right. Yeah. Like sounds like a great club. It does. It does. And it, you know, I, I'm sure there are other clubs in Canada that are equally organized. I've been exchanging some messages on Facebook with Todd Creasy from the uh, Ottawa. Uh, war games group okay uh, yeah and I'm, I'm hoping to talk to todd and maybe a couple of the ottawa guys uh, soon um but yeah i mean i guess it's it's horses for courses right it depends on where you are in the country and 
how organized your gaming group is. I know yeah, here and there, it's just like the occasional email saying, hey man, do you want to get together tomorrow? That's about as organized. I think yeah. sometimes you've got to have that, you got to have that, that perfect conjunction, like a tornado happening or something. You got to have that perfect conjunction of a person who's willing to be um, the link yeah. and pull everybody together and a venue, you know, like the uh, Hamilton Road Club in South London. Nice group. If you live within a comfortable drive of South London, Ontario, yeah. fun bunch of guys. Uh, they they have a community room at the um, at their local branch of the public library. Yeah, yeah I've and, been there. And the uh, Hamilton Tabletop Gaming Society. They uh, because Barnaby's a Legion member. Mm -hmm. They use the Legion Hall, and then they run their um, broadsword game days as a fundraiser for the for the Legion branch. Got you know a, an accessible venue that works for the club and someone willing to pull it together. Yeah. I think the other thing I took from talking with Renee is that having um, having some history and having some historical memory in your club helps too. So, you know, they've been going since the 1960s, thanks to that guy, Hutch. 1964. The club is yeah. me. Yeah, I'm kidding. And, you know, there are there are people in that club who remember gaming with Hutch, as Renee was telling us. And, the, and you know, there's that, that kind of long tradition of, you know, we've been doing this, we, we've been reaching out. I thought that was... That's something that a lot of groups don't necessarily have. Yeah, yeah. and it, it sounds like the, the um, uh, Hutch was like, he, he sounds like quite a remarkable man. You know, the stories on the website about him about and how he, he really set the tone and the culture for the club. Yeah. You know, and and because he was, he was both very inviting, but also very sort of firm. You know, this is the club. These are the rules. Yeah. It wasn't closed. You just had to, you know, we just made sure that you followed the rules. Yeah. And didn't show up at his house before gaming time. Yeah. Also, that, that one guy who told that story said he was actually quite gracious when we showed up early. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, yeah. trumpeters, if any of you guys are listening, uh, good on you. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, James and I will show up at, um, at your uh, trumpeter event some March. When I, think I, I think I might just copy their rules of conduct onto the Hot Lead website. I think they they would be honored. Like yeah. they're, it's very, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm not sure who we're going to interview next uh, podcast, but we have some contenders and we'll keep that under wraps until we know more. So we now move to the Canadian content corner. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. All right, James, 19 August. Why is 19 August important in Canadian military history? 
Well, that is the upgrade. The D upgrade. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Uh, just off the top of your noggin, uh, tell me about Dieppe. What was it for? What was it all about? What was the strategic objective? What's it all about, man? Well, it's all Ralphie. That's right. Um, that could be a song. Well, I mean, the the received wisdom passed down since August twentieth um, was that it was basically practice for the later invasion of D, uh, of Europe and opening the second front and they had to work out all these amphibious assaults and could you know a frontal assault on a on a defended harbor town be practical um you know you had the you had the canadian uh canadian military saying we want to get in a fight yeah, you know why you, coach. yeah put us in coach we're ready why are you keeping us in the on the bench in england not that we don't mind drinking your beer and dating your girls like my dad who married one. <laughs> well, why not? He had a lot of time on his hands. Yeah. Um, that is the perceived wisdom. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's totally right. And you might also, uh, you mentioned the second front, so you might also add, uh, you know, Churchill wanted to do something to show uh, Uncle Joe in uh, Moscow that we were serious. Um, yes, because certainly, certainly Stalin was always banging that drum at every summit meeting. Yeah. You know, the Allies weren't doing enough, and it was all, you know, Russians were the only ones doing any fighting. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that explains um, the broad outlines of what it was about. And just for fun, I reached out to um, a very good uh, friend of mine, one of those internet wargaming friends that you just haven't met yet, you know the type. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name is uh, Dai, D-A-I. Oh, yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's... Uh, Got a website called Die Dead. And the reason I reached out to him partly is because he's an awesome chap and he and I have exchanged emails and um, traded figures back and forth for a couple of years now. Um, on his website, it would, and I will put a link to it in the uh, podcast notes, he um, has some amazing um, warlord figures that he's painted up of Canadian infantry. for. So he's got a little DEP project going. Oh. It's skirmish stuff, so I'm not really quite sure what it's going to look like. But... Um, and one of the reasons why I really, I was impressed was because he painted up uh, somebody who's near and dear to the heart of my former service, uh, Padre uh, John Weirfoot, who was, oh, the, yes. he was the Canadian Victoria Cross winner for uh, Dieppe. And it's kind of remarkable because he was the only Canadian chaplain in World War II to get the, uh, um, the Victoria Cross. And he was awarded the, the VC because he refused to be evacuated. And he'd spent the day on the beach uh, getting wounded to the cover of landing craft, you know, sort of crossing the beach under fire and then uh, getting them under cover. And then uh, when the, the boats came in for the final lift off the beach, he got on a boat, but then he realized that most of his, uh, his flock were going to go into captivity. So he jumped off the boat and swam to shore and spent the rest of the war in captivity with them. So that's one of the reasons why I, I remember Dai's website because he had a, a nice kit bashed version of Padre Foot. So I reached out to him and I said, uh, could you tell me in 25 words what it was all about? And he wrote back and he said, 25 words? Yikes, I'm no good at this stuff. LOL, but I'll try. And he said, so I'm quoting him now. He says, the F was an experiment, a horrible, costly experiment by the Commonwealth to find out if an amphibious attack on a German-held French port was viable. 
Then he says, they're an unresearched, probably naive take on DF. And 26 words, not 25. Um, C minus for me. Well, no, good job, Di. I would give you like a, a like at least an A minus for capturing the received wisdom. Um, because yeah, I think most of us, most of us would say, yeah, it was like practice for overlord. What do we learn? Well, you learned that we learned that you don't land tanks on a shingle. Um, mm -hmm. Although that's actually a bit of a that's a bit of a, a legend because um, the reason why there are all those pictures that the Germans took after the battle of the tanks on the beaches was because that's where the tanks returned after they executed their mission, which was to get as far into town as possible. Quite a few of the Calgary tanks got off the beach, but the Germans had these giant roadblocks um, in the town of Dieppe itself. And the, the uh, engineers were supposed to blow those um, those roadblocks, but guess what? The engineers had all been machine gunned on the beach. Well, the mm. tanks got as far as they could, then they returned, they did their best to shield the uh, troops on the beach until they all ran out of ammunition. So why, why are we going over all of this? Because uh, I learned by watching uh, a series of interviews with David O'Keefe on the YouTube channel, uh, World War II TV, which is hosted by Paul Woolidge. Uh, Dieppe was really all about Enigma. Hmm. Yes, I saw some of that. He's got a book out about it, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. It's called, uh, it's the second edition of a book called One Day in August, right. uh, called Ian Fleming, Enigma and the Deadly Raid on Dieppe. And so the, what I learned from that was that by 1942, the Allies were losing the war in the Atlantic against the U-boats. The, the worst fear of Allied planners was that the Germans were about to switch over to a four-rotor Enigma machine. Uh, the one that they had was three-rotor, and the Allies had made some progress on uh, deciphering the Enigma code. But their worry was that if they went over to four, the four-rotor machine, it would be just impossible to crack the code. And it, yeah. wasn't, just, it wasn't just the the smart people in Bletchley Park, but it was that were that could work away at it. But what they really needed was they needed German documentation on how to set up the machines, on how to um, um, how the code books worked. They needed all of the kind of soft technical documentation, the technical writing that went along with the Enigma machines. Right. Yeah. And so they, they needed to capture an entire signals office. That's right. And there was such a signals office in Dieppe because it was a supply point for uh, one of the uh, channel divisions of the Kriegsmarine, uh, and they needed a substantial force that could go in and secure the harbor long enough for uh, a specially trained Royal Marine team uh, to go in and, and actually grab the materials. So the plan was that the Canadians would land on the beaches, uh, they would uh, secure, the, um, secure the town, various commandos, including U.S. Rangers, would take out the batteries on either side, and then um, the Marines would come in and uh, in this in this special boat, this former gunboat, and they would all jump off the boat with these big satchels full of that they were going to fill with documents, and then they would all get back on the boat and go back to England, and they would give it to Ian Fleming and his naval intelligence crew. And of course, that didn't happen. All of the Canadians pretty much were massacred on the beach. I mean, some of the some of the the planning is, in retrospect, it's kind of horrifically optimistic, right? Like there was one beach off one staircase off the beach at Puy that uh, the Canadians all had to go up. And I, I'm trying to remember which regiment it was. It was the, the Royal Regiment of Canada, I think, that had that, that task. And, mm. you know, the poor bastards were all massacred. Uh, barely a handful made it up that staircase and not enough to do any good. Their job was supposed to go across the cliffs and then to come into the town uh, from the south and take out a bunch of German batteries on the way. And they never made it. 
And then, um, you know, the Marines, their, their orders were so naive that they were told, you know, if you're, if you're, gunboat is sunk on the way in don't worry just jump off the gunboat swim to some of the ladders that are along the inner harbor climb up the ladders and then fight your way into the town which is you know just bonkers <laughs> you think about it just jump off the boat with all your kit and ammo swim yeah. swim to the ladder fight your way up the ladder try not to get shot and uh yeah it was just ridiculous um in fact one of the one of the guests on one of the the there were three there were three talks that David O'Keefe did on W on WWTV, World War II TV. And in the third talk, which was live streamed on the 19th, one of the guests made the point that um, the whole plan was um, uh, depended on everything going right. It was like a house of cards. And if one of the cards didn't stay up, then everybody died. So it was yeah. in some respects, a ridiculously optimistic plan. Um, but O'Keefe makes the point that it was entirely necessary because the only way to defeat the U-boats at the time was to find out where they were, what they were doing. And Enigma was the whole key to that because in 1942, the Allies didn't have the air cover over the Atlantic or the superiority and technolo technology of anti-submarine warfare. So if, they, if you didn't know where the U-boats were, then you would, uh, uh, you would just have your convoys massacred. And the other concern was that if the Tirpitz sortied with uh, Enigma and they didn't know that the Tirpitz was coming out because they just lost the PQ-17 convoy, it would just be another massacre. So, and then the, the whole effort to supply the Russians would have collapsed and so forth. So, because the Russians were being supplied by the Murmansk convoys, right? So. Yeah, and, every, yeah, and things were still looking very shaky in 1942. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the the war had not been run at one in, in August 1942. I mean, Stalingrad is still months away. Even with the Americans. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Germans are still ascendant. So. Yeah. I mean, the Americans are in the war, but it's going to take the Americans years to get their force ready. Like, I don't even know if the maybe one squadron of B-17s is in England by then. And hmm. about the only uncommitted force that the, that the Commonwealth Army has in Britain is, is the Canadian Army. And you have a whole division that's ready to go and and that division is useful to montgomery because sorry not montgomery um mountbatten mountbatten right because mountbatten's plan was that if you could sow enough chaos along the beachfront and in the town it would cover up the the uh, the fact that this was a very surgical operation to grab the enigma ship right so sorry. yeah not that that because um because they, they tried to launch the raid a week or two before and it got scuttled because of I think they got spotted by a gunboat or something. Yeah. And then they try again on the exact same target with the exact same plan. And I was like, well, what the hell? Like, yeah. you know, Mountbatten, Mount you lazy bastard. Like, he'll never you know, expect us to do this twice. Yeah. Like, like, was that the thinking? Sort of, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do the same thing. They won't be expecting that. But if, yeah, if, if the, it, it does make sense if the whole objective was that signals office with the enigma machine in it yeah yeah you couldn't you couldn't move the uh, the the port to attack you had to go to that same place yeah, yeah. and then just create enough destruction that the germans don't notice that things are missing they, mm -hmm. they'll just they'll just assume that it got blown up yeah and the, the whole fact that uh this was rehearsal for overlord is kind of a, a helpful myth that was spun after the fact yeah um, but in fact, there, there's no similarity between Dieppe and Overlord because there was no plan to stay. Paul Willich has this great line in, in his uh, one of his interviews with David O'Keefe where the whole plan of Overlord was right. 
we'll go ashore, we'll march to Berlin, we'll kill Hitler, and then we'll all go home. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> no, that was not the DF plan. You weren't putting an army ashore to stay ashore. You were putting uh, 4,000 guys um, on uh, in a relatively small town in France for what was basically a butcher and bolt operation, and then they would all go home. And, yeah, I mean, we probably learned more about amphibious tactics um, in the Pacific. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that had been going on for, like, Guadalcanal had happened already, right? And uh, mm, 42? Yeah, August 42. I think Americans are in Guadalcanal by then, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Although the Guadalcanal campaign lasted until 43. Yeah, well, it didn't help that the U.S. Navy kept getting sunk, but, um, yeah. Problems. <laughs> But the, yeah, there's there's tons of lessons to learn from the Pacific, and um, you know the idea that they developed uh, Hobart's funnies in response to the Dieppe raid. I mean, that's that seems like a bit of a, a spin, to be perfectly honest. Um, mm. I, like I'm sure they did learn things. You know, there's there's probably multiple objectives. Mm -hmm. I'm, sure, I'm sure staff officers from the from third division were you know afterwards were told to sit down and write lesson you know lessons learned after action reports. Right. Uh, launch an amphibious attack yeah yeah which were you know probably read by somebody and put in a file and yeah and armies certainly learn from the mistakes that's true but but to to gloss dieppe as a uh, as as a as a costly series of lessons learned and that was it um is not the case and the the sad thing about it is o'keefe points out is that ham roberts who was the canadian general commanding second division was put on the the shelf for the rest of the war uh, never went back to Canada and was frequently blamed by Canadians for um, butchering his division. Um, yeah, I, I hate that criticism. You know, the, like I, I remember somebody saying, oh, well, he should have refused. Yeah. Like, you, 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 don't, you don't refuse. Like, you know, after all this, sort of, oh, put us, in the, put us in the war. We want to go fight Germans. Yeah. Give you a chance to go fight Germans. They, oh, well, no, that's too risky a mission. You're right. going to go, okay, well, now you get to go run this supply depot, and we're going to put someone in your spot who will then lead the mission, and then your division goes to war without you. Like, um, I think it's ridiculous to, to say he could refuse. Yeah, I think so. And I think the reason why, and I was really impressed in uh, on the World War II TV interviews that, you know, Paul uh, Woolidge, the host, was being very, very sensitive with Canadian sensitivities. Like he was saying, you know, I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pent up emotion about the app still, and mm -hmm. it, you know we want to honor the guys who fought. We don't want to point fingers, but I think one of the things he was getting at was that this is still a sore spot in Canadian memory, right? Like the Canadian, the innocent Canadians were used by the evil British as cannon fodder, and you know we kind of gallantly yeah. volunteered to you know in this futile mission because that's what you know good colonials do, right? Oh, yeah. And I think they're trotting out some of the you know, lions led by donkeys tropes you yeah. Know, yeah. from World War One. Yeah. Which is, yeah, very uncharitable. But I, I certainly think, um, you know, there's there's a, a huge kind of well of memory about Dieppe in, in the Canadian consciousness. And mm -hmm. just seeing the in the, the last video that uh, um, in the O'Keefe Village interview, there was just uh, some stunning footage of all of the uh, monuments. Um, that are erected, as well as the military cemetery, which was actually created by the Germans to bury the thousand or so Canadian dead after the battle, and which is now a Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery. 
And uh, it made me think, you know, that's a place I really need to make a pilgrimage to at some point. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's Dieppe. Um, hard to think of wargaming potential for Dieppe unless you're just going to do skirmish stuff. I, I suppose you could do, I suppose you could do, um, you know, like chain of command attacks on the batteries or something. But, you know, okay. it's, hard, it's hard to think of like a Dieppe game where you're like landing the Essex Scottish or the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. And, you know, you're just going to charge up the Shingle Beach and then get murdered. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen some yeah some people have have done games of the app and it's like ooh ow doesn't seem fun yeah you know it's like playing it's like playing the um, Battle of Alundi as a Zulu yeah or just you know like your uh, first day on the Psalm game right you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> not much fun all right anyway that's our Canadian content uh, corner and uh, I'm gonna put a link up as well to our friend Dai's blog because. Uh, his uh, his minis, his Canadian 1942 minis are really worth a look. So, right. I don't know how much time we have left, but uh, I thought what we would do is we would uh, move on to a sequence that I'm calling our nightly natter, where you and I are going to pick apart a, um, a question mm -hmm. uh, that is burning on every Wargamer's mind. So the question I chose for tonight is, James, what makes a good set of rules? What makes a good set of rules? Yeah, hmm. I'm gonna put you on the spot again. Well, what's, what's a good set of rules? I think it kind of depends on where you are as a as a war gamer. Okay. Um, because you know, I always I always like the, you know, you want the rules to be simple but not simple minded. You know, and that is my problem with a lot of the so-called beer and pretzels rules that are very popular with people our age or older. Mm -hmm. Um, I find them a little too simple-minded. We're, all, you know, it's almost reverting back to when I was in the sandbox, you know, making pew pew noises and knocking over my plastic army men. Okay, they're not that bad. Like the the uh, you know fellow complaining about dragon rampant. Yeah, I thought maybe we could use that as a as a sort of way into this conversation. Uh, although, just so while we're talking about the sandbox, when I was uh, geez about ten, and my brother David was about eight, we had a bunch of airfix figures like most kids. Uh, Mm -hmm. in the 70s and uh, we figured out um i'm going to take a little bit of credit for this we figured out that after you know setting our armies up and then throwing wooden blocks at each other to try to knock over soldiers it might be more fun to actually use dice so i think i came up with a uh, and this is i was reminded of this by what renee was talking about in the interview of uh, um you know playing with one of his relatives so you roll a six and uh if you roll a, if you roll a six on a d6 then uh, you got to pick a figure that died uh, but then we realized that some of the figures in our airfix armies had machine guns. Mm. And we both agreed, well, a machine gun should get a lot of shots, whereas a rifle should get one shot. So we decided, I think, that a machine gun should get three D6. Oh, that's pretty yeah. elaborate. It was. So that was like... Uh, that's pretty great. I'm, I'm quite proud of that. I'm, I'm planning to write those systems, to write that down and publish it, I think. Maybe On Osprey. Postcard. I think Osprey could publish it. Yeah. But, but that, that's, that's the thing, you know, these people that say, oh, you know, rules should be on like the back of a postcard or, or on the back of a, you know, on one sheet of, of, of paper. And it's like, yeah. you know, having tried writing rules. Yes. Like that's great when you're working with a group and you all have the same conventions. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the wordage and rules is, you know, how to roll the dice, what, it, you know, what, how do we define flanks and the rear? Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, what, 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 what is the, what is the convention for this situation and that situation, which you've already figured out with the guys you've been playing with for 10 years. Right. You know, um, but when you're writing a set of rules, you've got to start explaining all that. And then the rules get longer and longer and longer. There was a really good interview, um, that, uh, Henry Hyde did with Richard Clark last week. If you, if you're a Patreon, uh, supporter of Henry's, you'll listen to it already, but he was, they were talking about the same thing, right? About um, hiring or, or working like Clark has now worked with several people um, through this uh, Bracewitz Press thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that the Henry and Richard were talking about just the degree of editing that's involved, and it's basically technical writing, right? You're yeah. you're having somebody who who is totally the author who's totally familiar with all the rules because they play out in his head constantly. And maybe his friends, who he's bored to tears with the same assumptions, and maybe have play tested. Um, yeah, you don't need to explain it, right? But if you got some bloke in Australia who's looking at the rules and going like, "I don't know what the hell is this all about," um, you you have to be ridiculously thorough in explaining it. Yeah, and that was like I had a I had a play test group for my Roman era rules, and that was exactly the case. I would get emails from guys in Australia going, "Okay, we played this, and this is the situation. What do you think?" and I was like, yeah, it sounds like you played it right. Or, oh, no, I've got to go and rewrite that paragraph because I didn't explain it properly the first time. What have, what have you done with the profits off that set of rules? The profits. It never got published. Sorry, I couldn't. couldn't really yeah. Well, you know, I did. I did. I Well, I guess, you know, I the one of my playtesters worked for oh, a software company that had bought Avalon Hill. And so he sent me those games of which you bought one. So I guess I got a hundred bucks off it. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> there you go. It only took 15 years. Right. So you mentioned uh, Dragon Rampant. So let's take that as a set of, as an example, because um, Dragon Rampant kind of fits in the, I guess we'd call it closer to the beer and pretzels. Like it's not, you'll notice those of, those of you that are watching on the screen, you'll notice I'm holding up this, right? <laughs> Where did you get that? I somebody gave it to me. Some some sweet person gave this to me. So oh, I'm holding up I'm holding up uh, uh, Getz's and Bowden's Empire, right? Possibly the most um, the most complicated Napoleonic rules ever. And oh my god, yes, yeah. So to compare <laughs> Empire, if you're like looking at a spectrum of Empire and then an Osprey Blue Spine title rules book like Dragon Rampant by uh, Dan Mersey, yeah, there's like, it's like zero to 10, uh, if you just want to think in terms of complexity. You and I have probably played more games of Dragon Rampant together than we have played any other rule set together. And we've known each other for a few years. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And this guy, Zach, and Zach, I'm not picking on you, mate. I have no idea who you are. And, uh, uh, you know, God bless you. You have a blog and you speak your mind on it. So, um, Zach has a blog called Pile of Dice, and he wrote a little piece uh, urging people to stop recommending Dragon Rampant rules for fantasy gaming. And he had two um, arguments, basically. The first was that the rules are annoyingly generic, like it doesn't have a fantasy feel. He said, uh, let me see if I can dig that, this up as we, as we talk, because he said, you know, a unit of bellicose foot uh, is a unit of bellicose foot. They have the same stats. It doesn't matter if they're you know, three, a three-figure troll unit or if they are um, tribesmen or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
he says, part of the appeal of a fantasy game is that you have varied unit types with a wide range of abilities and Dragon Rampant doesn't deliver that. You may as well be playing with squares of cardboard that have the unit stats on them. Uh, in other words, it's just an annoyingly generic game. And his second point was that the activation system sucks. Okay. Well, I have a few rebuttals to Zach. Okay. Um, first of all, if you're playing Dragon Rampant and you're enjoying playing Dragon Rampant for your fantasy armies, then when somebody says, hey, what's a good set of fantasy rules for my fantasy armies? Then it's totally legitimate to recommend Dragon Rampant if you're having fun with it. I'm someone who does that. Yep. But when I do recommend it to people, I do often mention the exact same, I give the same caveats that he does, except they say, okay, be warned what the, the, this is part of the rules and your mileage may vary. But the thing with, you know, the thing with generic armies, yes, it can get fun, kind of vanilla. I've got ideas for, you know, trying to make it a little more middle earthy. Mm -hmm. He's writing for everybody. He's trying to fit it in a 60-page Osprey Blue book. You know, my idea of an orc is different from, you know, Dan Mersey's idea of an orc. Different from the Zach guy's idea of an orc. How are we going to just decide that and fit it, fit it within one book? And really, any game, you could just be playing with pieces of cardboard with the stats written on them. Yeah, yeah. Or you could just be playing a hex encounter game. Yeah, our miniatures are, are just tokens that excite the imagination. So when I have my bunch of orcs with the red eye and they look all and I've got white banners, it's like that's, you know, to me that those, those are Noldor and, you know, servants of Sauron, not, not Lightfoot versus Elite. Right. Right. It's that... To me, it, it's it's the aesthetics which excite the imagination, which make, which make it less vanilla. Yeah. And the act, the activation system, there's many fixes for that. I was just thinking that you know we could, um, you know, take a page out of Oathmark, uh -huh. and you know, roll three dice, and take the best two. Yeah. Yeah. And you could still roll three ones and fail your activation. But and you and I, you and I played one of our traditional uh, large hundred point aside uh, games uh, when we got together a couple of weeks ago, and I think yes. one of the things that we had a giggle about was that one side of one side of the table uh, really didn't do much because we both sides kept crapping out their activation rolls. Where on the other side of the table, um, where you were primarily taking on my son John, there was a lot of action. And yeah. It, you know the activation roles were generally favorable we just got kind of got a giggle out of it right it's uh, we didn't take it to heart because we knew that essentially we were just playing the game for a giggle yeah and yeah. and it was there were there were some epic moments um you know my wolves fighting your bear in the woods that was pretty great yeah. Made for some good photos it was a lot of fun and you know that ties into something that i was listening to um ken riley who calls himself the yorkshire gamer Yes. Uh, Ken, I'm sorry about the accent, mate. He did an interview with uh, Stephen Wold, who is called the, I think, the old Wargamer on Twitter. Stephen is an amazing painter. He's from Australia, mm -hmm. lives in Adelaide. And they were having just the same conversation and something that Stephen said just totally stuck with me. He said, you know, life, when you get to a certain point, life is too short to faff around with whatever sexy new rule set comes along. He says, if you have a set of rules that you and your mate enjoy, you and your buddies like to play, and it gives you a good laugh, 
and you can get a good result out of it, then for God's sake, go ahead and play it. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I think part of it, is, you know, we're constantly looking for that perfect set of rules. Yeah. For us, we've, 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 we've gotten very happy with, you know, sharp practice and dragon rampant. Uh-huh. I think we're still looking for, you know, World War II set that totally pushes all our buttons. Point and Shot, Mom and Chain of Command are kind of there. We haven't had a chance to play O Group yet. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, and I know like with Scott, is, Scott is still looking for the perfect, you know, horse and musket game. Right. He, he finds Black Powder too, too simple. Whereas, I don't know, maybe Gen- General Darmy. Well, we haven't had a chance to play it enough yet to, to, to really find out. Yeah, it, it's it's what what are you what are you looking for as a gamer? Uh, what works with the group of people you're playing with? I play different rules with different people. Yes. Yeah. You know, like you or Brian or Keith are much more you know much more on the same same wavelength as me for what we're looking for in a game and rules complexity. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, tactical complexity, tactical challenge. Yeah. Um, of course, and of course, you're also all willing to play something a little simpler, like like Chicago Way, too. Right. Right. Whereas other guys, it's like I I can't play, you know, chain of command with them because it just gets too complicated. Yeah, and you know, there's a certain kind of person who you just try to explain the difference between actions and uh, command points, like. You know, okay, my commander can activate has three command points. That means each of my units gets to do three things. No, each of your units gets to do two things. But my commander has three, and it's like, oh, for God's sake, let me try to explain this one more time. (laughs) But some people just until like my son John, you know, 27 year old dude who's played a lot of games workshop, he he understood sharp practice three turns into the game. Yes, he was doing great. He was doing well. Except for he, he sent his cavalry the wrong direction. When he when he sent them into the middle, I was like, oh, no, they should go the other way. But, yeah. you know, cav- cavalry and sharp practice is very tough to handle. It is. Everybody everybody throws away their cavalry in the first two games thinking, yeah. oh, they'll just sweep those dudes out of the way. And it's like, what? They all got shot? Oh, my God. Yeah. And Very fragile. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think it does come down to uh, expectations in terms of do you want a crunchy set of roles that, that you know, offers tactical and oper- or depending on the scale, operational um, complexity, right? Mm-hmm. And are you prepared to invest the time in learning them? So I think it's significant that, as you said, neither of us, even though we got terribly excited about old group, and I think you're, you've made a little more progress on it than I have, um, neither of us have actually sat down and played a game yet. Well, I've got distracted by the Napoleonic Wars. Well, that's you know, that's one better. <laughs> well, Napoleonic, the Napoleonic era comes to every war gamer, I think. Maybe, maybe after the Congress of Vienna, you'll get back to World War II. But yeah, um, but you know, that's that's a rule set that I think is uh, advertises uh, for people who are looking for a fairly crunchy, simulation-intensive game. And that leads me to something that I listened to on the way home today, which is another American podcast called Anything But a One. And they had a conversation about rules and uh, their, their basic idea for like a 30 minute discussion was uh, old school versus new school rules. And I, I took some notes when I got home and th- this is what I came up with based on their conversation. And I'll put a link to it uh, uh, in the podcast notes. There are three guys out of Boston and they're worth a listen to. They're a lot of fun. Uh, so old school uh, rules are simulation heavy. So they're trying to simulate 
an historical period or an historical battle. And thus they're history heavy, uh, like they depend on a certain knowledge of history to, uh, as part of their appeal, and they can be quite complex. Now, you know, that's, that's up for debate because you could say, well, you know, the Grant Featherstone era, those rules were pretty simple, right? Like, yeah, they were history, but they were, you know, like in the H.G. Wells toy soldiers thing. But uh, when you think of like, what does I just flashed up? The empire rules. Yeah, the empire rules would totally be old school in that respect. Um, new school. Yeah. I, I'm old enough that I would call empire rules middle school. Yeah. Okay. You know, <laughs> old school is Grant and Featherstone. Yeah. Middle school is when everybody started going, oh, well, we have to be serious, right? Yeah. We, we're not just we're not just playing toy soldiers. This is like a serious simulation of history. And so it got very crunchy. The more the, the more technical details crammed into this game was better. I'm making air quotes here. Um, and so it was very it was very bottom up. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about um, uh, command decision. Have you ever played command decision rules? Yeah, briefly, I flirted with it in the '90s. Yeah, I mean, you're you're it's the same operational level as O Group, except right. you're worrying about what ammunition your tank is firing. Yeah, right. So very crunchy, very very bottom up, as opposed to, um, I would say the newer rules, which well, at least with with um, you know the Lardy rules, is you know. It's still you can simulate things. You just got to think about what it is you want to simulate, and then abstract everything else. Right, right, right. So O Group simulates the command structure of a battalion combat group. Right. You're mm -hmm. not worrying about what the deployment of the platoon is. You're not worried about what ammunition your tanks are firing. Right. You're worried about your orders and keeping the tempo going with your companies. Right and 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 your supporting fires. That's you're you're being a battalion commander, uh -huh. right? That's to me. That's the new rules, right? You're you're still simulating. You're just simulating the right right things. You're focusing on what you're simulating. You know the middle school rules are your your you know 80s and 90s rules with lots of charts and lots of factors and God knows I've written them. Yeah. You you've got this list of factors for everything that you've read in your extensive history, and and you're just trying to shove that all into a into a game like force feeding a goose to get pate. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah, and you know there's actually a comparable trend in um, in hex encounter games in this in the 80s and 90s, right? Because those games started off with you know, like Panzer Blitz and uh, Panzer Leader. And, yeah, you had, what, four factors on the counter? Yeah, and, and they, they grew out of games that had only two factors, right? If, you know, attack, defense would be, you know, sometimes that would just be one factor, the combat factor, then the movement factor. And then by the 1980s, you had these, you know, these multi-map games. Uh, I remember when I was undergraduate, some friends invited me over to, uh, for the weekend to somebody's apartment where they had this giant, uh, invasion of the USSR game, this Barbarossa game laid out. I think it was Drangnak Olsten or something like. And literally, you know, I was the Russian player, and uh, the first turn, you know, like one third of my units were just obliterated. And uh, every unit involved like a massive reading of charts. And, um, you know, like four hours later, we'd finished like the first, we, we got into the exploitation phase of the first German turn. Mm. I was like, yeah, I think I. 
I'm feeling exploited. <laughs> I'm just going to go home. Oh, good luck with this. Um, oh, and, and there were other games like Terrible Swift Sword, which was the Battle of uh, Gettysburg at battalion level. Um, I have the Battle of Waterloo spread out right now in, in Hex Encounter, and I've been going at it since June, and I'm only up to like God, 1400 hours. So I may never finish it, but you know, there's a certain thrill in playing it just because you're 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 going back. It's like going back to your old high school, right? It's there's a certain nostalgia thing, and everything I'm doing could be done by computer now. Um, but there's a certain kind of ridiculous pleasure to sort of doing it longhand, like doing longhand division on the map, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that's, that's certainly one way to look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, like remember, did you ever play uh, Johnny Reb Second Edition? Yes, I did, and, uh, and I found I found it maddening. Yeah, you try you try to you try to execute a charge. Yeah. And never it, never charge. And it just bogs down, and you just go, oh my god. Yeah. You know, because of all the, all the factors, all yeah. the things that, oh, the, I read this in a book, so this is important. So we have to have a chart for it, or we have to have a, a, a modifier to our die roll for it. Right. And it's like, eh, you know, maybe do we need to include all of that yeah. in our, you know, core level <laughs> horse and musket game? And the, and, and the important modifier is always that rebels are better at charging, right? Like yeah. if you're a Civil War game, yeah. Rebels are always better yeah. charging. Until 1862. Yeah. Um, they forget that. Yeah. And they never let the, they never, they never say that the Union gets really good at shooting. Yes. After 1862. That's true. Pickett's Charge was really a triumph of Union shooting. Yeah. Like, no, I, I even in Fire and Fury. Yeah. You know, the Rebs get this plus one for charging, but. Do the unions get a plus for having like really amazing artillery? <laughs> no. It's like, I'm sorry, my three inch parrot rifle should blow the shit out of you. They should blow you back to Richmond. That's right. That's happened. Go yeah. away. But yeah. you know, like you, the, those empire rules that you're just holding up, right? Yeah. Which caused many a headache for me back mm -hmm. in the 80s. Um, yeah, it, it's like a multi core set of rules. Like each player is supposed to be running a core, yeah, and maneuvering the individual battalions, which is insane. And you're worrying about, you know, sort of well, you've got your your half company of Russian skirmishers, like two guys, two figures. You're worried about them, <laughs> you know, like yeah. really? That's, that's that's a little too, you know. They're they're throwing in all the crunchy detail instead of figuring, okay, well, what's a core commander worried about? Yeah. You know, there's like newer rules like General Darmy. It's like, well, you know, a brigade of French infantry can put out a skirmish line of this strength. Uh -huh. And there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not super complicated to manage that skirmish line in the battle. Yeah. It's yeah. just, but it, but it does reflect French doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. So the other half of that, uh, the old school, and I, I think I like your middle school thing. The new school thing that these guys were laying out was there's three categories. They said instead of simulation heavy, it's game heavy. So the emphasis on newer newer tabletop rules is on playing. Uh, mm -hmm. his, history is light. So, for example, they use Flames of War as an example where, you know, sometimes people don't even see, you know, see them as uh, the newer players just see the see them as factions rather than as nationalities. Right? Alt action. Yeah, and uh, they have very simple mechanisms, right? So you're not like putting a casualty cap on each cast. So I guess the question at the end of the day is what what are you looking for out of the set of rules? Like you and I had a great time with um, Dragon Rampant. 
Mm -hmm. I think because we're kind of like-minded when we finally get to the point where we're going to sit down with um, uh, old group, I think you and I understand enough about how World War II battles were managed at the uh, operational or at least at the battalion brigade level that we, we we will understand and enjoy those sets of roles. But I think really it depends upon, you know, how much time you have, who are you playing with and what do you want to, what, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to have a lot? Yeah, I still really want to play O group with Brian Hall. Yeah. I was really bummed out that he's not running an O group game at KegsCon at the end of the month. Yeah. Cause I, I, if he was, I, I was going to make sure that, my the game i'm running didn't conflict with that so i could sit in on it because yeah. brian's got a really good grip on well he, he used to his job in the reserves before he retired i believe was run, running a battalion or brigade headquarters as a senior ncm you know yeah. so he, kind of, he he has a grasp on that sort of thing in the operational tempo and phase lines and all that stuff um, so be, I think it'd be really yeah. fun to play O group with him and his sexy six millimeter kit. Yeah. And he's, he's got a, a very sound knowledge of the, the period too. Yes, he does. Yeah. So that would be ideal for a player like that, but you know, that for, for somebody just coming out of, uh, the GW world, who just wants to run some guys around the table with machine guns, maybe both action. Yeah. Switch. Except please don't call them factions. I yeah. hate that. Don't call them factions. Yeah. yeah, this isn't Jets versus Sharks. This isn't you know IRA versus Ulster Nationalists. This is you know sides in World War Two. I, I just hate the word faction. Yeah. So the the final thing I would say too is that you know just as I held up a copy of um, Empire, mostly just because somebody gave it to me, and I I like collecting things. Uh, here's something else that I just totally gave up to. It's uh, some Napoleonic rules called et sans résultat, which ironically enough means end without result, which was something that some French generals said after some battle that didn't go very well. I have I to think, ask you, do you, want, do you want to play a bloody set of rules called without result? Honestly. Um, and it has charts. It has massive um, stats. It has army lists. It has complex commands that, uh, you know, where you have to give orders to your subcommanders. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get it on the table. What rules do I have right now on my table for Napoleonics? I have um, the latest Osprey rules called uh, Absolute Emperor, which are, I think, kind of the dragon rampant of um, Napoleonics gaming. It's from that Osprey Blue Line series. And it looks, it looks super simple. It's not terribly, it's just a bunch of very simple charts, um, some very simple mechanisms. My son and I tried them a few times. Um, the, the downside of them is that they are, they try to do everything, right? So you, they divide the, your army into cores. Each unit is called a division. But, and I think I talked about this the last time you and I were on. Um, the divisions also can do tactical formations. And I think you made the point the last time we chatted mm -hmm. that why, why not just say this, this unit is in, a, is in an offensive posture or this unit is in a defensive posture, whatever it makes, or this unit is in a, a maneuver posture, i.e., it is executing a road move, road move, um, and just leave it at that. So, yeah. Anyway, I will report next time we get together on what I thought of Absolute Emperor. But I think it's—is it new school? Is it old school? Is it fun? I guess maybe is it fun is the most important question. Yeah. Yeah. Or are we just in detention? We're in detention. 
that's something that my uh, that my theological instructors always used to say. It's a law or gospel, or is it just the tension between the two? All right, before we finish, we're going to just talk about what we've been doing and what we're going to do. What have you been doing, James? Well, I'm painting Bavarians. Um, I just finished Scharfschützen. Scharfschützen. Yeah, I my first my half dozen front rank Bavarian Schutzen. I had so much fun painting them that I built them up to a two group formation with um, Hauptmann Richard Scharf and his uh, Feldwebel Dominic Harfner. Uh -huh. Anybody who speaks German will know the jokes. Then I even added a added a um, bugler because. Somebody, somebody on, on Twitter said that a, a musician is a force multiplier. So far, maybe not, but you know, um, he looks good with all the with all the the braids. But and and actually, the guys armed with because of course uh, the Schutzen were the third rank originally in the Bavarian infantry. Okay, they, they were the marksmen. Then around eighteen eleven, they all got peeled off into a light company, just like the the French. But they're all called because that was their job to be marksmen except the guys that were um many of them had rifle had muskets and the guys that were armed with rifles were called sharpshootsen sharpshooters so instead of calling them jaegers the bavarians called them schutzen did they come out of the 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 seven years war tradition of the freik corps you know which were as i understand it and i'm just asking as somebody who's just getting back into seven years war and i don't understand everything about the the prussian army of the time but as I understand it, the Pride Corps were like these sort of independent special. They're mercenary. Um, yeah, they were mercenary, but they are also used for recon or for um, capturing strong points or that sort of thing. It depended on the Freikorps. Corps. Mm -hmm. Some Freikorps Corps were, um, you know, it depended on the guy ra who raised the Freikorps Corps on behalf of whichever monarch. I mean, Frederick used a lot of them. Some of them, like, it was sort of like combined arms legions. They had a they had a section or a battery of guns. They had a squadron of hussars. They had a company of jaegers. They had, you know, battalion of musketeers. Okay. And that was his own little independent command that he ran around and did stuff with. Yeah. Um, and others were just other Freikorps were just musketeers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Some were jaegers. I was I was just curious about that because it sounded like they did some of that sort of nifty independent stuff that your shoots and uh, yeah yeah they, they were they were used a lot for the um uh for the Clana Craig yeah yeah and you, you did a great write up um of a solo uh sharp practice game uh, which I Thank commented you. on on Twitter and I will put a link to that in our pod notes if you haven't read it yet in your rabbits in my basement blog it's it was a lot of fun oh thank you. Yeah, uh, and you're, I have to say, having played with your newly painted Napoleonic figures uh, when I was over uh, last week, was it last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks uh, ago. They are a lot of fun to play with. So um, what, are your, what are your plans going forward for the next, between now and our next podcast? Painting more Bavarians. Painting more Bavarians. It does not stop. Well, actually, I am, I am closing in on the end of my Bavarians. Okay. And I'll probably have to buy more because I was looking at it. It's like, I've got a brigade and a half. If for General Darmy, I've got a brigade and a half of Bavarians. Yeah. So I might as well round it up to a full division. You might as well, mate. Just might, it might as well, in for penny, in for pound. Yeah. I think um, so. But then I, I have like a division of Prussians to paint as well. Sorry, but, Napoleonic Prussians. Yes, Napoleonic Prussians. Well, that's uh, we'll just spray paint them all black and blog some um, 
flesh on their heads and you're done. No. Little white crosses? No. 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 Stop it. I'm going to have to hit you. No. Um, oh, but other exciting. I, I will take a break from painting the pole guy because I have some 3D printed orcs coming to me from Spain. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, these are the, um, the Caballero figures. Uh, no, no, they're not Caballero. Uh, they're from Knucklebones Minis on Patreon. Okay. And a fellow, um, a fellow administrator on the Wargaming and Middle Earth group said, "Yo, we had it, and he'd print some off." And we said, "Oh, well, licensing and everything." So it's like, okay, we talked to the talk to the artist. You know, I added to my fee was you know some extra money for third party printing. But these are these orcs are one that they they're very much in the in the aesthetic of angus mcbride like they, they almost have like medieval kettle hats or salettes on lovely um but they still look orky and they're all carrying like pole arms and big axes because i my orcs need some some heavy infantry with mother-in-law choppers right big choppers do you remember um that guy uh, iron mitten was doing some custom uh, orcs uh, oh my god God, he just put his wolf riders in his blog. You gotta go look. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, he he did some really nice kit fashion. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think I saw a couple of pictures of the knucklebones figures, and they are they are uh, all quite all right. So I look forward yes. to seeing those. You'll have to interrupt your Bavarian painting. Yeah, I, oh, I I will. I'll, I'll um. So hopefully in about a month, I'll get these chaps in the mail and be able to paint them up. Although they they were a lot more expensive than I thought they were going to be. Oh, yeah. He, he first says, oh, well, you know, 12 figures, maybe about $20, $25. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll two dozen. Right. So I figured the mail charge won't change much. And if I'm paying for licensing, I might as well get two dozen. Turns out the resin cost is really, is really atrocious. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was two and a half euros per figure just for the resin. Yeah, so I ended up paying like 128 dollars for 24 figures ouch yeah you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy those figures though well i will i will because you couldn't i've i've looked for orcs with pole arms and metal and rafam has some that are kind of close which i almost bought but didn't quite do it enough for me and are, are you going to um speaking of, th of things coming up are you, you're going to kegscon you're saying no you said you're yes. running a game you're running a game at kegscon is it your gangster game uh, yeah, I'm going to run the uh, the case of the golden teapot of Petra. Uh, rumor has it there's an ancient ar ancient mysterious artifact hidden in the warehouse, and various people are arriving to find it. Um, all so, yeah. time, all heavily armed. Well, that's the way that happens. The way that happens. And they all and they all yeah, they all start exactly the same distance from the objective. <laughs> right. So, in other words, like a Guy Ritchie movie, only with American accents. Yeah. Yeah, and a high body count. <laughs> yes, it'll be, I'll be using the Chicago Way rules. I wish I could be there. That sounds like great fun. So that's on the 25th of September. Yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, I'm really glad to see that's going ahead. As far as I know, that's the only Canadian event that uh, we're tracking right now that's going ahead. Yeah, Broadswords, Broadsword 10 has been cancelled already which is sad but he it was going to be in october and he just figures the fourth wave will be crazy by then yeah yeah well i kudos to uh kudos to our friends in uh chatham for making that go ahead um 
So what am I doing? You ask. Yes, yes. Enough now. about me. What about you? Yeah, Mike, what are you doing? What's your line? Oh, Mike, what are you doing? Oh, so glad you asked. So I'm gonna hold these chaps, hold these chaps up to the screen. Uh, uh, giant Prussian musketeers. Yes, giant Prussian. They're very out of focus. Oh, are they? Oh. Yeah, because you're holding them too close. Hold them more by. Yeah, now they're tiny and I can't see them, but you know. Okay. Well, just following instructions. Anyway, you know, once you come time, I'd know what regiment that was. This is the uh, second musketeer regiment. Oh. Yeah. They're, they're very old. I have the flags to go with them. And yeah, those are foundry figures. I have uh, 30 of them. Mm. Uh, finished. I'm just finishing the base. And then I have um, my next project is to finish my 15 millimeter Canadian Italy company, which is, I think, another three or four days' work. I'll have that done. Very good. And then I have a big pile of seven years' war Prussians uh, to do. I have a bunch of artillery and fusiliers and more foundry fry cores. So Oh, I think that'll, be, that'll be my fall project is just paint more paint more Prussians and at the same time rebase my ancient uh, Russians who all need better flags. So I'm working on trying to their flags being that bad. They weren't that bad, but a lot of them were, were hand done and hand painted. I mean, oh, uh, I may order some from uh, Adolfo Ramos. So it's all about faces and flags, right? Faces, faces and flags, mate. Yep, exactly. And I painted those uh, using the uh, the whole thing. I painted that whole unit using the Foundry uh, three-tone paint system. Mm -hmm. How'd that work for you? I, I thought to myself, uh, you know, this is the best stuff that I've ever painted. And then in the last few days, just as I was finishing, I went on Twitter and I saw some uh, figures. And I thought, I might as well just cut my hands off and uh, throw myself into the sea. Yeah, but you know, there's also, there's also for, for every person that you see where you go, oh my God, I should just give up. There's like two people your stuff and go, wow, you're great. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's like I, a friend of mine used to say when I used to run, when my knees still worked, um, don't worry about the guy running past you, just worry about your own race, right? And that's, that's right. That's, that's the key to the mental health part of the body. Yeah. Yeah. The fat guy going for a run is at least off the couch. Uh, there you go. Yep. All right, mate. I think we're going to wrap up for tonight. Uh, as always, it's been a pleasure. This was episode five. And uh, yeah, we'll start thinking about our next guest and start doing this again soon. And then you and I will gird our loins and talk to Henry uh, Henry Hyde at the end of the month. Yes. I say, sometimes if, I, if I say Henry Hoy by accident, it's because there was a guy called Henry Hoy that used to work for me in the Army. So, But he was quite different than Henry Hyde. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, our final music, as uh, as everybody knows, is from Canadian military Canadian military tradition, and I was going to play I was going to play the uh, Princess Patricia's uh, very good regimental light infantry march mouse because our friend Rene Charbonneau he talked about how his dad was in the Patricias mm -hmm. during the war. I mean, you know, despite our, our both of us having connection with the Royal Canadian Regiment, you know, we have to have this rivalry with the, with the Patricias. Having read a lot of their history, it's like I, I really have an awful lot of respect for them. <laughs> yeah, they're okay. Those oh guys. They're, they're not bad. Yeah, I mean, they're okay for a bunch of... Here we go. So thanks very much, James. Take care. Yep. All right. Cheerio. We'll play this as we march out.
The Canadian Wargamer podcast was recorded via Zoom and edited rather inexpertly using GarageBand on a MacBook. Copyright 2021, Mike Peterson and James Manto. Cheerio.